This is Jim Pruitt, and you listen to another episode of the Farm So Hard podcast. So I farm so hard, the employees want to find me, and then want to hire me. What's 100K to a guy like me? Could you please remind me? Farm so hard, this ain't easy. Working late nights, you best believe me. My grades can only go ace. Never want to see another B unless I'm Jay-Z. Farm so hard, let's get paid. Let's get paid. Another episode of the Farm So Hard podcast. Of course, I have another special episode for you guys today. We're going to be talking about something that we've never done before. And if you're working at any place that deals with complex cardiology patients, this is where you're going to want to tune in. I'm going to welcome, again, again, you guys know me, but I'm going to welcome my guest, Rafael Lombardo. And she is an ED clinical pharmacy specialist. And she did her pharmacy school at UGA, then went on to complete a PGY-1 at Emory St. Joseph Hospital. And she's been practicing in the ED since then. Her practice interests are going to be neuro, shock, sepsis, and antimicrobial stewardship. But the big thing we're going to talk about today is the thing that she basically got thrusted into. She didn't have a choice when it came to this. When it came to complex cardiology patients in those that have end-stage heart failure. So today, we're going to be talking about LVAD emergencies. This was highly requested by a few people. So I hope you guys really enjoy this one. I'm going to walk on Rafael and just tell us a little bit more about yourself, where you're from, and just walk to the show. Hey, Jimmy and Farm So Hard people. Uh, thanks so much for having me um, on the podcast today. So a little bit about me. Um, I'm originally from the North, um, but I've moved around. I'm kind of a transplant kid. I moved around all over my whole life. Ended up in Athens, Georgia, which was probably no surprise as to how I ended up uh, in pharmacy school um, out there, but um, for the last since 2017, I've been the ER uh, clinical specialist at Emory St. Joe's, and um, I think working there has truly been, like you said, I've had really no choice <laughs> in learning about complex cardiology patients, but it's also been a true joy. Um, just for a little background about where I work and what St. Joe's is, um, St. Joe's is a hospital under the Emory Healthcare System. We are a 410 bed community tertiary care hospital. So it's a little bit different. We're a community hospital um, in Atlanta, Georgia. Recently in the last few years, St. Joe's was designated as a level one emergency cardiac care center uh, for the state of Georgia. Um, So that gives you kind of an idea of the type of patient that we're uh, serving there. As it relates to LVADs, we implant about 20 to 25 LVADs annually. um, And we're currently servicing and providing care for over 100 of LVAD patients. So um, it's definitely something that we see all the time. Yeah, that's something that's cool. Again, in my shop, we we see them. But again, unless you just have, if you've been thrusted into it by training, it's one of those things where if you're a busy ER pharmacist, it's like you can do your best, but that's where <laughs> podcasts come into play and having people who deal with that a lot more. So thank you for, for sharing that with me. Uh, let's just go to the very basic, uh, the very basic thing. All right. So you told us a little bit about your, your background and as far as the patients that you guys see at your hospital. Let's just get very basic. What is an LVAD and why do patients need them? Yeah. Um, so an LVAD is a type of mechanical circulatory support um, device that can be used as an advanced treatment uh, for patients with end-stage chronic heart failure. LVADs are very sophisticated, um, and they essentially augment the function of the failing native heart, and they, and they provide um, and restore perfusion by improving blood flow from the heart to the rest of the body. So VADs are effective 
for both your short-term management of like a, an acute decompensated heart failure, refractory to inotropic support. And then you also have your long-term therapy. And that's going to be a majority of, of where patients are actually getting LBADs placed. Um, and your long-term um, management is for your stage D chronic heart failure patients. With this indication specifically, the most common scenarios are going to be two major indications. You have a bridge to transplantation. Um, and what that means is, is that uh, patients who are currently approved and listed for a heart transplant, um, but they're waiting, right? And they are, have limited time on their inotropic support and they need something in the in-between. And then you have your destination therapy or DT, um, BTT and then DT. Destination therapy is for patients who aren't eligible, unfortunately, for heart transplant, um, but they remain refractory to medical management. So these patients will live the remainder of their life on an LBAD. Of course, heart transplant is the gold standard, right? An optimal curative strategy for NCH heart failure, but resources are limited. And so LVADs have really come into play and help bridge this gap. Um, ultimately, the goal of an LVAD, um, much like, you know, standard pharmacologic management for heart failure, um, you want to improve their symptoms, reduce hospitalization, and of course, reduce mortality. So to truly understand, I think, what an LVAD um, is, it's really important that we touch on the anatomy of the LVAD and its basic components. So you have the pump itself, right, which consists of an inflow cannula, which is surgically implanted or connected to the left ventricle. And then you have an outflow cannula that is connected to the ascending aorta. Mm -hmm. So therefore, blood is directed from the left ventricle um, through the pump and then exits at the ascending aorta. The pump is powered um, and controlled by an external controller. And then they also as an external power source. And what's connecting the external source controller and power to the internal pump is a percutaneous lead that's called the driveline. Um, the driveline typically exits the skin through the upper abdominal wall. Um, so it's very like, robot vibes. Um, the modern LVAD um, has significantly evolved over the years. Um, you have your older first generation models being what were called pulsatile pumps. Um, and these were originally designed to mimic normal physiology and pulsatile flow. Okay. So unfortunately, those these were really heavy. Um, they were, uh, they had multiple mechanical compartments. They're way less durable. But the one cool thing about them is they actually had a, a ventilator system on the driveline and you can actually connect like a hand pulsatile pump. So if there's any device failure, patients could literally pump themselves. <laughs> kind of crazy. So uh, now though, we have our newer generation LVADs and, and these are different in that they provide continuous flow versus pulsatile flow. Um, and your three major devices that we use these days is going to be your heartware or also known as an HVAD, HeartMate 2 and HeartMate 3. Um, all of these VADs are your continuous flow VADs, but the main difference between them is just how the blood is spun in the actual VAD itself. So your HeartMate 2 is an axial flow, and we're getting into the nitty gritty, I'm going to keep it short and sweet, axial flow, so it flows like this. Centrifugal flow is what your heart wear and your heart rate three have, and it flows like this or is spun like this. And these are, you know, these are going to be a majority. The reason I bring any of this up is because when you have a LVAD patient coming in, 
it is it is in some ways important to know what type of bed they have. While they all are continuous, um, the axial flow LVAD, the heart rate too, has a propensity for higher higher complications, specifically bleeding complications. So that's just something to be aware of. It's nothing that really, you know, changes much about approaching the LVAD patient, but I just think it's important to know. And also just because the the evolution of LVADs has really been a big deal and, and really important and, and has helping patients um, live longer. So let's now, okay. Hopefully that's not too boring. Now let's, uh, <laughs> now that we've introduced like device components, let's talk about LVAD terminology. Three important LVAD parameters that I'll be using a lot through the conversation. So I think um, they're really important to know um, and, and relate to LVAD function. Um, and that's gonna be speed, power, and flow. So um, one reference that I read in, in preparing for our conversation, I, I like the way that they described it as, these three things, speed, power, and flow, are your vital signs of the LVAD. And I really like that. It's a good way to think about it. These three parameters are going to be displayed on the LVAD controller. And, and they'll be a part of all the assessments of an LVAD, um, of an LVAD patient coming in. Now, as pharmacists, we're not going to be assessing the LVAD at all. But I think it's important to be able to, be able to understand the language behind what's going on with the LVAD, because that can help you have key um, understanding and, and language to what's going on physiologically with the LVAD, and then that takes you to your management. So without getting too technical and beyond like scope of conversation, understanding the relationship between those parameters or vital signs um, is important. So here we go. Flow through the LVAD is proportional to the speed that's set on the device. The this, this speed is something is the only thing that is actually predetermined on the vice. Okay. So flow makes sense, right? Higher the speed, higher the flow. Pressure differences at the inflow and outflow cannulas also impact flow through the device. So LBED flow is dependent on preload and also very sensitive to afterload, much like your normal left ventricle, right? And then power. So power is the amount of power consumed to actually spin the pump and get it working. So if your LVAD has, if you jack up the speed on your LVAD, right, you're using more power to pump and therefore, therefore your flow is increased. Does that make sense? Yeah. Cool. Um, so now we've gotten through all the fundamental uh, discussion about LVADs. Um, and, and I think that's, that as, you know, introductory of a, of a conversation that I can have about it, because knowing your LVAD anatomy really is going to be um, helpful and, and, and super important to understanding how to approach the LVAD uh, patient when they arrive in the ER. Perfect. That's like a really great breakdown, because I think you can look at this and we can kind of break this, this talk up into a little different sessions and, that, and having that background that again, most of us, I don't know, flow and power and that stuff is, I just hey, we'll have someone else. But again, what I've noticed through time, and you probably noticed the same thing, the more you know about these things, the easier it is for you to help your team when drugs are involved. So I think that's one of the things that we we have to kind of go back and look at at all times where I'm really, I'm a really big like um, intubation guy. I, I love to know what blades are you using? Or is it a mag? Is it a Miller? Why? You know, is it a hyperangulated? What's your approach? What's your backup? Are you using the mm-hmm. Does it, 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 does my drugs impact that? 
slightly, but again, I, I just like to be involved in understanding the whole process. And I go to the intubation trainings and stuff like that. So this is something that, again, the more you know, the easier it is, and it helps you build relationships with your team. So I think that's a really good uh, point where we can kind of break this into different little parts and, and be a transition so that we have the background. Now, let us move into the next session of this podcast. All right. So now that we have kind of the background stuff, let's go ahead and jump into the meat and potatoes of today. Let's talk about the most common type of LVAD emergencies. Now, I can sit here and, and tell you that I, I think I know some of these things, but realistically, I want to hear from you. What are the most common LVAD emergencies? And we'll get into what we can actually do about those. Awesome. Okay. So naturally, I mean, we just talked about how we have a patient who has a robot heart that is, you know, connected to an external device. So as you can imagine, there's a vast array of complications that can go wrong um, or that can arise in the LVAD patient. So they can be really intimidating whenever they walk through the door. Um, naturally, newer developments in LVAD devices, you know, they've contributed to improved survival. So as the number of patients with LVADs rise, so does the frequency in which your LVAD patient's gonna come to the ER. Um, so I think it's something that we just have to start getting comfortable with. I actually read um, the 2017 Intermax uh, report, which it, for those who don't know what Intermax is, it's a, it's a database for outcomes of patients that receive LVADs or mechanical circulatory systems for treatment of heart failure. So this report actually approximated half of patients with a newly placed LVAD presented to the ER within the first month of implantation. And then patients present on average seven times to the ER within the first year of implantation. So. We got to start learning and, and feeling a little more comfortable about this, especially as uh, LVAD placements continue to rise and more, more technology is advancing. So I think this is becoming the normal, right? So LVAD complications, though, they can be broken down into two categories. I like to break them down this way um, and keep it simple. You have LVAD device complications. So like that would be something like a suction event, which we'll get into a pump thrombosis. So something is actually mechanically wrong with the system. I'm not going to get too much into the um, device failure type uh, complications because that has to do with the controller. Um, but I'm going to be focusing on complications that, you know, where, me where like medicine would be involved from that perspective. And then you have your other category, which is like secondary or associated complications because of the LVAD. So that's going to be things like hypotension um, or hemodynamic instability, bleeding, stroke, infection, arrhythmia. And there's so many different categories or, or different complications. And, and I think we could be here for hours talking about management strategies and what that means. And so um, I think some of the things that I'm going to focus on are your key complications that are one, most common, right? <laughs> and then ones you're probably going to see. And then ones where opportunity um, like you said, for pharmacists that can, you know, for um, involvement and having actual impact when intervening and seeing these patients. And so that's what we're going to focus on um, today. Perfect. Let's jump right into it. So let's just kind of transition so we know what they are. Again, how do we, the providers in general, we're speaking to an audience of physicians, nurses, pharmacists, so all together, how do we manage these LVAT emergencies? Because as soon as I hear a sick LVAT patient, I'm like, I see a few choice words and <laughs> so help us, help us walk, walk us through the management of these, these 
All right. So first things first, you're going to call the heart failure team. You're going to call the LVAD coordinator. <laughs> That's probably what we've all done and experienced. And you know, they're on board and you know, they're coming. That's the thing. They're always going to come. So after that, <laughs> um, I think let's, let's, Let's start with hypotension. I think because one of the first things that you're going to realize or, you know, one of the first things you're going to assess in the LVAD patient is vitals, right? So I think we should just start there. So let's talk about some hypo and hypotension being one of your more concerning, you know, situations. So I think the first thing that we need to acknowledge is how difficult it is to assess the blood pressure in the LVAD patient <laughs> um, with a, a continuous flow device. Specifically, remember, we're not talking about pulsatile flow devices, old school devices, Nokia phone of LVAD devices. These are your really sleek new um, continuous flow devices. So they have a much more narrow pulse pressure index. So that might mean you don't feel a palpable pulse until, you know, unless, okay, you might, if there's still some function from the native heart that is contributing to flow, you might. But don't be surprised if that's not the case. And you feel a radio pulse and one's not there, but they're up and talking to you. That's normal, which is, makes it crazy. Um, and obviously, <laughs> it's crazy. With, and obviously, that makes measuring blood pressure with a manual or automatic not reliable at all. So you're going to get blood pressures that are like 20 over 20. Like, it's just going to be stupid. It won't make sense. Your gold standard for obtaining um, any kind of measure of blood pressure or MAP is going to be an art line. But that might not be something that's happening straight away in the ER, right? That might take a little bit of time um, before we actually get to that place. So without getting too much into the weeds of it, you want to use a Doppler to get pressure. And that's likely going to give you the best estimate of a patient's map. And that's really what we care the most about in LVAD patients, to be completely honest. The International Society of Heart and Lung Transplant, which I will now, um, just, you know, I will call ISHLT for the rest of this, so I don't have to spend five minutes saying that. Um, it defines hypotension as a map of less than 60 in continuous flow LVADs. They actually also, the ISHLT has a, has a really nice systematic approach to hypotension um, in the form of an algorithm and chart, which I know we all love. So that's a really good reference to have in your back pocket um, when a hypotensive VAD comes through the door. So um, this, this essentially, to break it down, this algorithm breaks management into two categories. Hypertension in the setting of low flow. So remember, we talked about flow, low blood flow um, through the VAD, and then high VAD flow. So we're going to start with high VAD flows. So if you're thinking about the VAD and you have a hypertensive patient and they have high flow, we're thinking vasodilation, right? So this could be maybe vasodilating meds that's causing this. Maybe the hydralazine that the patient's on is now too high of the dose for the patient. Um, maybe they're on some other agents for, um, you know, pulmonary hypertension that's causing some of this vasodilation. And that could be maybe just ac acutely that is now a dose that's too high for the patient or whatever that's going on. Um, that could be contributing. So we need to just remember, let's not forget about just the basics of, is it a med problem, right? Um, obviously, we're going to hold the med. We could assess fluid status of the patient. And if necessary, start vasopressors. Where this is, you know, that could be, that is something to think about. On the flip side, if you have a high, uh, hypotensive VAD with high flow in the setting of fever or leukocytosis, 
We are now thinking sepsis, distributive shock, loss of vascular tone, right? Less, less SBR um, happening. So more vasodilation, therefore higher flow. So it's kind of counterintuitive. You think high flow means high blood flow, but really what's happening is there's less pressure going against that flow. So that's why it's high. Um, so you might actually see higher flows on the LVAD device in the setting of hypotension with distributive shock. Now let's go to the flip side. So we just went through high flow indications and what can happen. And now let's go to low flow. So low flow, we need to be thinking of factors impacting preload, okay? So one quick way, and so let's keep preload on our mind. <laughs> one quick way to assess the etiology um, of a low flow hypotensive patient is actually the presence of jugular venous pressure, JVP. So if you have a hypotensive patient with low flow and they have low JVP, we need to be thinking, okay, in the setting of pre low preload, that's probably an indication of low volume, right? So you've got low volume for what reasons? Are they bleeding? Are they hypovolemic because their diuretic is too high of a dose at this point? Or is it something device related? Is it a suction event, um, which we'll get into? Um, is it a, an issue with the VAD where it's kind of blocking flow? And so, or not, or, you know, impacting flow to which the, there's low LV filling pressure contributing to that. Now let's get into high JVP. So remember, we're talking about low flow, low preload, but high JVP, right? So that could actually, that's a little more complicated. That actually might be an indication of right heart failure. Um, and in that situation, we would need an echo to actually confirm that. And that may warrant treatment with something completely different. That may actually indicate that need for diuretics and possible inotropic therapy. Definitely a call to a CTF. So <laughs> that's what we're thinking. On the flip side, from the, from the device perspective, is there an obstruction? Is there a pump thrombus that's impacting the LV from, being from unloading? And that's what's causing the backup of flow and the high JVP and the low flow, right? You, you would still have a lower flow backup of, of, you know, your high JVP, but in the setting of an obstruction. And so those, you know, different ways of thinking about hypotension can kind of lead you into how do we manage it? Um, and they're all very different, right? So hypotension can essentially be a manifestation, right, of some LVAD specific complications like suction events or obstructions, and then also some other disease process or condition that's going on like a sepsis or an acute right heart failure. I think now, since I've mentioned these um, device related complications enough, like suction and pump thrombosis, we can get into those because those are like the very LVAD specific things that are, are somewhat complicated, but I think it's really important Scary. Under yeah, I, <laughs> scary. It is. It's the stuff that freaks us out. That's what it is. <laughs> that's the stuff. And they should. And they should. Okay. Um, that's when you're really like you're you're calling CTS and you know heart failure like three times in a row. Um, suction events. So yeah, it's not just scary. We're freaking out at this point. A suction event is a it's actually a common LVAD complication and it occurs most often as a result of reduced preload, like I like we said previously. So you have suboptimal left ventricular filling, 
which in turn can actually collapse. This sounds horrible, scary. Collapse the left ventricle wall, okay? Um, and it causes the inflow cannula to kind of be covered in some capacity um, or blocked. And so in this situation, you know, the pump is still pumping. The pump is still spinning. It's going, let's go, you know, this is what I'm here to do. And so in the setting where you have, you know, an interface between the cannula and you actually, and the actual left ventricular wall, the pump's still spinning and the result is low flow. It's kind of scary. So some signs and symptoms, right? Hypotension, like we talked about. Okay, you also now have the interface of the left ventricle with a compartment. And what do you think that's gonna cause? Arrhythmias, primarily ventricular arrhythmias. A lot of irritation on the ventricle wall. Um, makes sense. And also low flow alarm. The VAD may actually be alarming the patient like, hey, I'm not getting flow through this thing. Um, and so that might be um, part of that part of that presentation. In this situation, you you also like with hypotension, they're all kind of related, right? You have to identify and manage like the underlying etiology. Um, a lot of times it is hypovolemic state, dehydration, hemorrhage, shock, um, if you don't have enough flow or volume coming through the bed, the LV wall will then collapse because that, that pump is still spinning. So although it seems we should, you know, fluid resuscitation and a heart failure patient, that might be warranted. Um, stopping diuretics, and, and this is something pharmacy wouldn't do, but you actually can reduce the speed. Like I said, that's the one thing you can control on the VAD device. You can reduce the speed. So, that's not, so you reduce. And, and in reducing the speed, it actually just allows the ventricle to catch up a bit, right? So it's not constantly trying to pump, pump, pump. You just reduce it a little bit. It gives it a little time to kind of, you know, um, we have more intravascular volume at that point, And it kind of is allowed for us to catch up um, without like speeding through and trying to continue, you know, keep the process going. Um, again, you can also have an underfilled e, uh, left ventricle because of if there's any evidence of right heart failure. We kind of talked about that um, previously. So you may need inotropic support, vasopressors. Um, but this, but RV failure is either seen most commonly right after surgery, which isn't the point of this conversation, or as, as a patient continues to have an LVAD device and requires more chronic management later on in, in treatment. And then last but not least, straight up device failure. So if the device isn't working and there's no flow, for whatever reason, then of course the, the inflow cannula is just going to suck the LV wall in. So yeah, I feel as though it does sound extremely scary, but as long as you can correct that underlying etiology and identify it, then hopefully we can get them in top shape and kind of hopefully tune them up from that perspective. Now, I will talk about the next device-related complication, which is, which is the most scary, um, is your pump thrombosis. Yeah, this one is this one is definitely warrants the panic. So this is a result of an obstructive thrombus lodged in the pump, um, and it is catastrophic. And it definitely warrants prompt diagnosis and treatment. Um, Pump-related factors that contribute to a patient having uh, thrombosis is basically due to the interaction at the interface between blood flowing through the device and the pump components itself. So what happens is as blood is spinning through the, you know, a thousand rotations uh, a minute, it, this results in a hematologic effect that's really unique 
um, that happens to the LVAD patient. So um, there is an underlying hemolysis that occurs due to the increase, so this mechanical shear force that's exerted on the red blood cells as it goes through the pump and as it passes through the device. So you have a simultaneous release of intracellular clotting components, and that activates platelets in your coagulation system. So you have both like hemolysis and clotting all happening within this process. And so you have the, it emphasizes um, that there's a really delicate balance between providing optimal anticoagulation so that they don't have thrombosis, but then also potentially exacerbating bleed risk, right? So to reduce pump thrombosis, LVAD patients are managed on antiplatelets and anticoagulants, um, mainly going to be aspirin, and that could be anywhere from 81 to 325, and warfarin with an INR goal of 2 to 3. They used to have device-specific goals, but now we've realized that these, the, the goals of two to three is appropriate for all devices, which is really nice. Keep it consistent. So patient-related factors. What are some uh, patient-related factors that can contribute to a patient having a thrombus? Um, that could just be pre-existing factors. Did they have any factors before the LVAD? AFib, mechanical valve, hypercoagulable state, any uh, incidence of VTEs for any reason? Um, are they non-compliant? That's also possible, which would be, it's truly unfortunate, but it's there. Um, and then, right, and then low flow states, like we talked about, anything that would be contributing to low flow, um, maybe their blood pressure, for example, or if they have, you know, any kind of heart or right heart failure, just, just anything that would contribute to a lower flow where you have more stasis um, through the bed. Management or prevention is another thing. So, in preventing other LVAD complications, such as bleeding, right? Some patients may have lower INR goals because they have multiple bleeding events. And if you have a patient with a low INR goal, that can unfortunately set them up for other pump problems like a thrombus. Perfect. So it seems like it just you have, you have a host of different things where, you, where we can basically look at these thrombus and then the question comes, okay, if they have that going on, if it's compromising things, do we pull the trigger on some of the bigger guns? So what, what's, the, what's the next approach when it comes to thrombosis? Yeah. Okay. So here are some telltale signs um, of, of a patient coming in with a pump thrombosis. So one, they're going to have power, the power elevations on their pump. So remember I talked about how the pump, we talked a lot about flow and speed so far, but there's also power. So if their power is up, that means that thing is using a lot of power to get some through something. Does that make sense? So if you have power elevations, it's trying to overcome an obstruction. In addition to having inadequate LV unloading, it can't get through the device. They also may have symptoms of acute heart failure because their LV is not being able to, to function properly. They may have a subtherapeutic INR. And most importantly, they may have evidence of hemolysis. And some, some key things that you want to look for in some labs you want to get um, for these patients is going to be a lactate dehydrogenase and LDH. And what you'll find is that the LDH will be high. So when they say high, the guidelines say three times the upper limit of normal. At St. Joe's, we, we say that or an LDH of greater than or equal to 500. Um, you're also going to have hemoglobinuria, so T-colored urine. Um, because the renal system just can't absorb the way it needs to because it's being overloaded. Um, you're going to have a low haptoglobin and you may have an elevated indirect uh, bilirubin as well. 
So if you want, we can get into the nitty gritty of why those would be changed um, or, you know, why those labs specifically, um, but that may be for um, another day or we can get into it. You tell me. Uh, we can go, go right into it. You want to go into it? Okay, cool. So haptoglobin, that is primarily produced in the liver and its function is to bind free hemoglobin um, from lice red cells. So prevent, and it prevents its toxic effects because haptoglobin levels become so depleted, right? In the presence of large free hemoglobin in hemolysis, it's decreased. Does that make sense? Cool. Indirect bilirubin. That's elevated because the conversion of hemoglobin to bilirubin essentially exceeds the liver's capacity to conjugate and excrete it. And then you have hemoglobinuria, and that indicates a severe intravascular hemolysis because you are essentially, you've overwhelmed the absorptive capacity um, in the re renal tubular system. So all of these things kind of go into play um, with these patients. However, those, you know, it's interesting because a patient may not have a full-on thrombus yet, but what you will see is patients will start to kind of have little changes in their um, lactate dehydrogenase and, and slight increases over time. So I say if you're going to see an LVAD patient in the ER, no matter what it is, check one, because it kind of will give a trend as to what's going on and if that's ever going to be part of the issue. So when it comes to throwing out the big guns, when do you actually know to pull the trigger on managing this? If the patient has new heart failure symptoms and any evidence of hemolysis, then you pull the trigger. So um, meaning like if there's any hemodynamic compromise to the patient, they're coming in looking volume overloaded, like we talked about, um, their LDH is high, they have T-colored urine, then that is definitely an indication for pulling the trigger on pharmacologic management. And unfortunately, that may even be needing to consider um, a surgical correction as well. So for these patients, you intensify IV anticoagulation. Um, we typically go to high-dose heparin first, being our major workhorse in this instance. Um, but direct thrombin inhibitors have some data as well. Bival, I think there was a study recently that just showed that they had really good evidence. Now, when I say studies, I mean case reports, because that's kind of the limitation with LVADs, right? It's really small patient population. A lot of what we do is just based on a case report did it and they had good outcomes. So let's try. <laughs> and we can also use um, our gastroban as there's also been some studies um, with that as well. Um, but I, I, we try to stick with heparin as much as we can just due to economic factors. And then also our gastroban, the false elevation in the INR makes it just a, one extra, right? One more extra complicating factor in trying to manage this patient when they're already complicated. But it doesn't mean that you can't have an LVAD patient with real hit, considering these patients have been exposed to heparin so much. You also then want to, along with that, you want to manage their acute decompensated heart failure with diuretics and inotropes if you have to. They may have to be put back on milrinone um, if necessary during this time. And then if all else fails, we go to the really big gun. We go to Alteplase, which I have mixed feelings about, but you got to do what you got to do. So um, there's mixed results and case reports. Again, all of this that we do, which is also scary in and of itself, is the fact that we are, we are using really big, really big guns to manage these patients with like five studies of, you know, two people. So it's not recommended first line, but if you got to throw the kitchen sink, you got to throw the kitchen sink. And um, big things there, you need to get a head CT. Um, you have to exclude any kind of subacute stroke 
that could have happened in the patient that maybe wasn't, you know, contributing to anything, but could potentially put the patient at risk for hemorrhagic conversion. Or also if it is a, you know, it is possible that with a pump thrombosis, little pieces break off and do cause strokes, but, you know, are just little baby, you know, microvascular strokes. And, and that could be uh, obviously fatal for the patient if they converted. Um, you also have to, you know, when to can, when would you consider all the place? So you would, I know at St. For St. Joe's, for example, we think about, is the patient a surgical candidate? Like if we really had to take them back to the OR, could we? And if we can't, for whatever reason, then we need to save this bed, right? Also, is the hemolysis refractory despite your high intensity um, IV anticoagulation? And does there continue to be hemodynamic compromise? Are they still hypotensive? Is the RV now failing? What else is going on? Um, in the setting of needing to switch from your IV anticoagulation to Alteplase, which I realize for the record in the ER, we may not be here, but I think it's important to know. Let's say we're holding an LDAD pump thrombosis. That would be a real, real treat. Um, you would hold the heparin or the direct thrombin inhibitor, of course, and start the um, Alteplase. And actually, there's some, there's some, and this sounds crazy and counterintuitive, you may actually, if, you know, and during all of this, you still continue to patient on warfarin, right? However, if you start Alteplase, you may actually need to reverse it, which sounds wild, but you might in order to help prevent hemorrhagic conversion and major bleeding complications for this patient. So you may have to reverse the warfarin. You try not to, <laughs> but if that day that you start Alteplase and that INR is three, you got to be really careful. Um, and you may just use things like FFP, you might can use vitamin K, but ultimately we're going to be blasting this, this, hopefully this thrombus out. And we don't want there to be any potential hemorrhaging events that could occur um, in the patient with intracranial hemorrhages or severe GI bleeds being your major risk here. So it seems completely counterintuitive, but it is something you may just have to, you know, consider and throw out there. Of course, this would be primarily up to a cardiovascular uh, or like a CTS surgeon who's managing the patient to decide what they feel comfortable with in that moment and what's going on. But these are just some of the complications that may arise and, and decisions that need to be made um, when, when treating a pump thrombosis. Now, especially LVADs are, like you said, with older patients. I mean, I think we have LVAD patients in their 80s, 70s. I mean, you name it. I mean, that's their lifelong, you know, treatment forever. They're never going to get a heart. Um, and and St. Joe's, who do we see? Uh, elderly heart failure patients. That's like a major part of our uh, patient population. So that's definitely something that, you know, when I, in, in residency and was learning all of this, I was like, I don't understand. Why are we reversing a patient with a pump round? But like, it just goes against everything in your whole everything that you know. Um, but like I said, these are not normal people. <laughs> this is so different. Um, yeah. But yeah, exactly what you said, the risk is there. So again, for the, I feel like I have a, a good sense of what happens for these, these, these pumps, thrombusings that nature, something that I feel a little bit more comfortable with that comes up sometimes is some of these drive line infections and that, that occur. Can we t touch on that? And cause again, these are people who I, I see a, a decent amount of now and I feel slightly comfortable, but again, this is something you probably, it's bread and butter for you. Well, okay. So good news is that, you know, okay, we'll talk a little about why this happens. Okay. 
So while infections, um, you know, infection rates have actually decreased a lot with the new continuous flow band devices, um, but they remain like there, it's a major um, cause of high morbidity and mortality in LVAD patients. Um, and if you think about it, it makes sense, right? You have LVADs require a connection between the pump um, and the external controller by way of this drive line, right? Um, that interfaces with the skin. Um, and the drive line itself historically has been and continues to be the most common site for infection in an LVAD patient. Um, the drive line exit site is basically a bacteria entry site. Um, so you have infection. Um, that can be um, along this site and it can range from like superficial. So just involving the driveline site only. And then you have like deeper uh, structure of, uh, infections that can happen like a pump pocket infection, which would be really difficult to eradicate or the pump itself. Um, some risk factors may include trauma to the driveline. That's your biggest one. Um, you know, them not really paying attention and kind of and washing it or cleaning it. Something happens with the trauma to the area. Um, malnutrition, duration of LVAD support. The longer you have the VAD, of course, the most like the more likely you are of having an infection, obesity, poor hygiene, all of these things. Um, luckily for us, a patient who comes into the emergency department uh, presenting with infection um, presents pretty, it's pretty straight. I mean, for LVAD, it's pretty straightforward. Um, you're going to have normal, um, your normal like local signs of infection at the site. Uh, pain, warmth, redness, drainage, uh, all the way to systemic symptoms, right? So fever, malaise, those kinds of things. Um, evidence of shock, uh, sepsis, um, which again, may be indicated by a high flow. Um, that's how you really know it's, it's pretty bad. So basically your more com most uh, common organisms for causing any of these types of infections are gonna be um, your gram positive organisms that can cling to material and create a biofilm. So um, your most common is going to be like staph aureus and quag negative staph um, or strep. And then you also, though, um, a lot of studies actually show enterococcus and pseudomonas being high culprits as well um, in LVADs. And so um, that's something you have to consider whenever um, treating the LVAD driveline infection. Fungal infections are also possible, although less common. And if you've got a fungal infection, Good luck. It's going to take a lot to get rid of that thing. Um, and, and those are really what we hope doesn't happen. I mean, that is like so challenging to get rid of. Um, so your typical management, right, for all infections is source control. Unfortunately, that's not possible with an LVAD. <laughs> so just one of those things to think about um, whenever managing these patients. And I think as stewards in the emergency department, we do a lot um, in trying to make sure that we're not over-treating we try to think, okay, where's the source of the infection? Can we narrow in some way? Do we really need banks? Do we really need pseudomonas coverage? Um, in this situation, yes, we do. So don't be afraid to use your big guns. I know I know there's a recent podcast about bank and but you might actually need to use it. Um, you can also use like, you know, use your antibiogram. What is the most common organism? Or actually look at the patient's history. Do they have a history of, of driveline infections in the past? You may actually be able to get away um, with using some uh, more narrow agents, depending on if the patient has a history of driveline infections, and especially if they have a history of driveline infections that are a little bit more, that are deeper um, and may actually involve more of the structure, that's likely going to be what's still feeding and causing some of those problems. Um, but don't be afraid to go broad. And in fact, that's what the guidelines do recommend. Um, I will say, 
The um, ISHLT guidelines has a specific section on managing infections related to LVAD, and it's really thorough and it's awesome. And it goes into like pre, post, and during LVAD placement. And um, but for for after LVAD, um, you know, complications um, where they would come to us that we would see, they said they go broad. Um, and you may, you know, it's a good point just to bring up that we have to go broad because we can't do source control. And you may see patients who are actually on prolonged or lifelong um, prophylaxis as well. So don't be surprised if your LVAD patients come in and they're like, I'm on Doxy for the rest of my life, or I'm on Keflex for the rest of my life. Um, that's definitely a possibility. So again, those are sort of the key ones. Again, they come in, I'm like, oh, this is going to be easy. <laughs> again, I may just be lucky, but a lot of the ones that I got, usually they had recent cultures. Yep. You know, everyone's very comfortable. The patient knows what, the, what they're going to grow. I, I know. And he's just like, you can go ahead and do bank for me. One thing that came up that probably has more data now in patients that had confirmed MRSA is things like a read events and a dollop events. And, and yeah. those are, that's when I get really, you know, happy. I, I know <laughs> that the heart failure team is like, oh, if you just do it downstairs. That could save an admission. The patient really yep. That some some key situations where I think that again, not necessarily a confirmed indication, FDA indication, but now I feel like we have a decent amount of data out there that said that you can do, especially for confirmed MRSA. This can basically always say uh, my my phrase that I tell my team is like, I want to take your patient from ICU to ICU later. (laughs) (laughs) No, I love that. No, you're so right, and I'm so glad you brought that up. I mean. We have Dalba. Um, that's what we use at um, at St. Joe's and in and, and Emory and Arita. I mean, we have both of these options, and there's such great options because you know I think I think we have to as Elvas are evolving. I think our first thing that we pull the trigger on is like, oh my guys, an Elva, they have to be admitted. They have to be. It doesn't matter. I mean, they're completely fine, and they have just a little redness around the site, but they have to be admitted. And I mean, I think as we start to get more comfortable in managing these patients, we can kind of be advocates and go. Okay, well, do they really like what we can have conversations with the heart failure team and go, I know the ER is panicking and they're saying, you know, they need to be admitted for IV antibiotics, but is this the first offense? Do we know really what's going on? Are they having any issues with flow? Is their VAD monitor freaking out? And, and maybe there is something bigger going on. Or is it possible that we can give them something that would give them IV, you know, concentrated med? for two weeks and they can just be at home freely. And if something goes wrong, they can certainly come back. So I think we have to remember that there is evidence. I don't know about, I, have y'all given Dalba or um, Redevancin for these patients? Yeah, when I, when I was in residency, when I was at Avid Health Orlando, we had a huge population there and this was common. Like I was the, unfortunately, the course, the, the site coordinator. So every patient that got it, I had to look them up. <laughs> right. I would go through my CT surgeries like, I mean, we're, we're using this. <laughs> you can say what you want. Like, we're using this. Just it's okay. <laughs> and I started seeing it used a lot more for that. And I'm like, wait a second. Like, this is a pretty unique option downstairs. And I've seen it happen once or twice in the, in the ED. But we usually, if I can get my team to not freak out and, and we can say, okay, wait a second. We can give, give your, if you want to give one dose and opt them for a period of time until right. we can finish the workup. And once the team comes down, write their note. Because again, if the patient's not sick, this is not going to be a rapid thing. Like when they're sick, heart failure is going to come down there. It's going to be a whole gang. If they're not, right. it's like, ah. 
Right. So, you'll know if you, you'll know if they need admitted or not because if heart failure is like, hey, we'll come after round, you're like, Dalbo, let's go. Like we're good. If there if there's something really wrong though, you know they'll be there and you need to admit there. Yeah. They, they may beat you back to the room and you're in the room. <laughs> yeah. Right. Those are the, the big ones. And I think that the last thing that I, I want to hit on that, that scares people is the different arrhythmias that, that occur. Oh. And we manage them differently because again, like I, I always think to myself, there's a chunk missing there. So what do I do now? <laughs> right. So, okay. Arrhythmias, they're going to be really common in your all bad patients. You know, you have that underlying cardiomyopathy. Maybe they've had ACEs before the implant. They've had probably some kind of right heart dysfunction at some point. Then you have that mechanical compression, like I said, of the ventricle from the inflow graft. And sometimes just the interface of the flow um, or of the of the uh, cannula with the actual wall of the LV just causes it to freak out, um, essentially. And so some patients may actually feel palpitations, um, but a lot of times it's really nonspecific. Um, they're just tired, nauseous, maybe a little lightheaded, maybe a little weak. Um, and I think the biggest indicator for most elevated patients is their ICD will shock them. And they'll be like, whoa, what's going on? <laughs> um so that's kind of your biggest indicator. Most, and FY, you know, in, in case the listeners are, aren't aware, most LVAP patients have an ICD because at that point, when you're so end stage heart failure, you are going to have an ICD place. Um, so that is a good, you know, safety net there um, that those patients will have. Um, but they still can have atrial and ventricular arrhythmias um, that can, that can be at play. Um, and, and truly medical management, at least, um, is, is, is pretty similar. The only weird thing is um, pharmacologically, at least. Um, I guess the weird thing, though, is especially I want to talk about ventricular arrhythmias because those are the most interesting. Um, you'll find that your LVAD patient can tolerate severe ventricular arrhythmias that would otherwise be considered life-threatening. And they're there with minimal symptoms, if not up and talking to you. Um, and, and it's just wild when you go in and you're like, is that VTAC? And he's just, Hey guys, (laughs) um, it's completely bizarre. Um, but you have to remember the LVAD, right. is producing adequate cardiac output to meet end organ uh, perfusion, right? So the brain's getting perfused. The patient is not obtended. We are here with a VTAC that is of alive and well for the most part. Um, which goes against everything that you think of when you think of going into a ventricular tax or like a VFib patient room. So it is really impressive, um, actually, to be a, a part of those discussions, that, that situation. Um, but don't let their, like, surprisingly alive and well demeanor um, <laughs> confuse you. It's still a medical emergency, um, even though they are responsive for the most part. Uh, patients in sustained VT that have an LVAD, even though the pump is supporting them, that right heart still can fail and be fatal. Um, so of course, first things first, is it an electrolyte problem? It very well could be. Is it a suction event problem? It very well could be. You can just potentially manage some of these things like we talked about previously. Um, I hypovolemia and inadequate like venous return to like a low flow state because of the suction, definitely a little soft fluid bolus that might actually fix the ventricular arrhythmia. Um, but then when it comes to actual managing them from like an anti-rhythmic standpoint, um, you you actually treat them the way that the guidelines for non-LVAD patients are treated. Um, and actually, I listened to a podcast, I think, um, about ventricular arrhythmias that was on. Yeah. So all of y'all go back to that and look at the data. But basically, <laughs> you have amyolidocaine proca- uh, procainamide, 
Um, if, if, if it's a, the big thing here is if it's a ventricular arrhythmia due to actually an electrical problem, it may or may not work. If it's due to the device, it's probably not going to work. So it's just something to remember, um, or just to kind of think about if you try amio, it fails, you try lidocaine, it, it still fails. Maybe there's something else that we're missing or we need to try. Um, like maybe there, we need to get a point of care ultrasound is what's the left ventricle doing? Is there, if if it's really small and things are fine or flowing and you have low flow, that's a suction event. Let's give them a little fluid and see if they pop out of it. But in the, in the instance where the patient isn't responding and they are more critical, um, and, and they start to have altered mental status. And even if they don't, you know, but we just can't get them out of this rhythm. Um, you still want to cardiovar defibrillate them as you would with any other patient. Um, I know that we, we do this in patients who are, are, have evidence of being hemodynamically unstable. Um, and, and some of these cases, eventually, if you can't get an LVAD patient out of the ventricular rhythm, they will become unstable. Um, and so you do want to um, shock them, or as my providers say, good old Georgia power. So, <laughs> so you may medicine. have to get that involved in medicine. So you, uh, you definitely uh, will probably still want to employ that. However, the difference is sometimes when you uh, shock a patient for a rhythm, in a lot of cases, your normal patient is extremely probably already um, unresponsive. And, and you may do some comfort measures, like maybe some pain meds, the LVAD patient is likely going to be far more responsive and awake than your normal patient. So you have to remember, you can't just shock them like anybody else. You have to actually have some appropriate sedation and pain management going on um, for that patient. Perfect. Perfect. So we're just going to continue with our AMEO, same doses, everything like that. And that's that's really the, the, the big gist of all, all of this. I think those are the things that most of us can feel yeah. comfortable even attempting to step in a room with. <laughs> and it's just, it's just great. I, I think you've mentioned it before, but I, I want to make sure I highlight a, a point here. But the, the guidelines that help uh, us manage these LVAP pain, can you just let people know again that the society and they can, where can they find this, this particular guide? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So ISHLT, International Society of Heart and Lung uh, Transplant Guidelines, they have, um, awesome guidelines. It's about managing patients with mechanical circulatory devices in general. Um, uh, their guideline is extremely inclusive and it has amazing references. And like I said, charts to, to um, help guide, um, which we love a quick reference, right? Um, and then also within that specifically, I just want to say in 2019, and, and this is a reference that I think every emergency uh, provider, pharmacist, anyone in the ER should know about and have is there's a, um, just two years ago, three years ago, they, they created a consensus statement for emergency management of LVAD uh, patients. And it was developed with a collaborative effort from ISHLT, Heart, Fa- Heart Failure Society of America, and Society for Academic Emergency Medicine. So it is a comprehensive review of what LVAD is, what management strategy should be employed. I used a lot of what they say to teach uh, students and residents about these complications. Um, it's just like a really great reference. And so I think it's one of those that you want to have. Um, also, you know, the American College of Cardiology, AHA, they've supported literature out there as well. Um, but it really is, a, you know, really relying on the ISHLT, I think is really, we're going to get most of your information here. Perfect. I think that's the, the big thing. So, you know, thank you for coming. Any 
final things you, you want to let the audience know? Again, we have a, a host of people listening here and, and around the world, to be, to be honest. So any, any final thoughts that you have for LBAT about emergencies and just how to ease some of our minds? I think, I mean, I think these patients, working with these patients, don't let it intimidate you. I know it can be really intimidating and scary, but I, I will say working, you know, when an LBAT comes in, I think it's one of the best times for you to really have like that multidisciplinary care involved and to be a part of something really special. Um, I know like at St. Joe's, I, I mean, I'm sure about this is the way it is with all centers is I think when an LVAD patient comes in, you know, at that moment, you're going to have heart failure on board. You're going to have ER there. You're going to have CPS there. And depending on the situation, you might have ID there. You might also have GI there. If there's a bleed, you're going to have all different disciplines taking care of this patient. And I, I think, you know, that sets you up for really good relationship that sets you up for being able to um, put your recommendations out there and be involved in, in the care of a patient and, and that's continually evolving. So I just think it's a really good opportunity. So think of it from that perspective and maybe it'll be exciting and not scary. <laughs> well, I guess definitely thank you coming on giving your expertise. Again, these are some very complex patients and it's something that the audience wanted. Again, I got at least 10 or 15 different replies and Hey, can we talk about LVATs? Can we talk about some of these more assist devices? And we're probably going to go and do, do more if, if possible. But again, thank you for coming on. And I think the audience again, for listening to another episode, uh, just, just know guys that we, in the next few months and by the time you guys hear this, there's going to be some very exciting news for ER pharmacy. Uh, I think I probably, do the best I can to surround myself with very you know, impactful people. And we have some special news coming next year, particularly about Empower Conference. If you enjoyed that last year, trust me, it's going to be phenomenal. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna really blow you away with the news we have releasing pretty soon. And then for some of the other things that we're going to be doing as far as uh, Pharmacy Pearls, it's definitely been something that we've been really getting back on board with. Our website has been revamped and ready to go. And uh, PACU, a pharmacy at University, is something that we we actually making a few changes to better you guys. I think by the end of the year, we're going to have something that's going to really, really excite all people. Again, we're, we're focusing PACU on all acute care. So internal medicine, ID, oncology, all those things. And we really want to let you guys know that we have some pretty interesting things that we're going to be partnering on. It's going to be helpful for you guys. So uh that's that's all I have for today. Again, all this stuff's going to be on the show notes. Uh, check all that stuff out. Check all of our other sister sites. Again, Packing Pharm- Pharmacy Pearls. And I'm going to close out the same way I do every single time, guys. You don't have to be a pharmacist. You're going to work in the ED. But everything you do, make sure you farm so hard. Closes it. Ozzy scratches his head. Whatever she's looking for, it isn't there.